Have you been hearing the news? Do you know the headlines? Have you heard the latest word? To be sure, our situation is geopolitical, country against country, nation against nation, leader against leader. The tension is spilling over into everyday conversations. Rumors are abounding, fears are escalating, people are abuzz. The air is thin with chatter of war. Yes, this is the stuff, the setting and the scenario of Second Kings chapter 5. It seems that no matter where you turn in this chapter, you'll find bloated egos and inflated fears. Our chapter begins by rehearsing the fear-fed days and sleep-starved nights in the land of Israel. The public outcry and terror can be directly tied to the brutalizing military conquests of Naaman and his men. Naaman is the general commanding the raids and the assaults in the land of Israel. He's the overarching and yet strangely affable villain who, with a nod or with even a subtle gesture of his hideous hand, can catapult his army forward, taking whatever and whomever he pleases. His is the strong and ugly arm that cannot be slowed, stopped, or stalled. The scholarly conjecture is that perhaps General Naaman, commander of the foreign king's army, is in fact the real foreign ruler and enemy to Israel. After all, the fighting arm of Naaman's, of Israel's enemy hangs on Naaman's every word. No one dared question his authority. In the words of Walter Brueggemann, Naaman is a larger-than-life military figure. He looms large in the text because he is both all-powerful and powerless at the same time. Our text notes that Naaman has leprosy, perhaps not what we think of Hansen's disease in modern times, but it's a devastating skin condition nonetheless. At this point, it doesn't matter that Naaman commands all the king's horses and, and all the king's men. There is nothing Naaman can do to heal himself. He was a powerful outcast who was simultaneously a political insider. You get the impression that no one dared to speak of his skin condition, at least not too loudly, openly, or defiantly. To disparage the general would have been foolish at best and fatal at worst. Second Kings commentator Marvin Sweeney notes that as the commander of the army, he is responsible for the military success against Israel. He goes on to say that despite suffering from a skin disease, Naaman would have little reason to abandon his military position. At several points in our text, it's clear that Naaman's name was known among the households of Israel. At several moments and points in our story, we can deduce that the word about Naaman travels quickly through the land of Israel, 
like a lit fuse that's been set off in a political tender box. Perhaps it's always been the case that power mixed with authority and strength can be terrifying. It's as if the people of Israel are, are throwing up their hands, grasping for an explanation about how the forces opposed to the people of God can succeed. The passage tells us that just the other day, Naaman's men brazenly rode into the heart of Israel to take and loot at will. It wasn't just food and, and family heirlooms, but, but people that they grabbed and snatched with their warring hands. You can hear the tension in our text today. The only viable explanation is that somehow God must be allowing the tragic triumphs of the enemy. It's understandable, really. It's as if Israel would rather imagine God aiding Naaman's raids than to imagine a God who doesn't have an answer to the brutality of war that came knocking at Israel's door. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 2 records that on one recent raid, a young girl was swept away from her home. She disappears in a cloud of dust by Naaman's men, only to reappear as a slave, a servant in Naaman's household, where she is forced to attend to the general's wife. In this account in 2 Kings, we read only of her capture and forced labor, but our imaginations can quickly run wild. Surely there must have been others plucked from their homes, from the arms of mothers and fathers. Surely others were also traumatically ripped away and then forced to serve their foreign captors. Lindsay Freeman writes imaginatively about the young girl who was captured by saying, quote, in the midst of deep grief over never seeing her family again, she retains her faith. And like so many women and girls in the Bible who experience desperate circumstances, she chooses the path of healing and shalom. She chooses to do what she can to set things right. Naaman, it turns out, is a leper. Picture how the seemingly invisible girl might have witnessed the suffering. Maybe she had to wash his soiled clothes, risking infection herself. Maybe, perhaps, she saw her mistress crying, or perhaps she passed invisibly through the house, as servants seemed to do, and she saw his lesions. She could have rejoiced in his suffering. It would be a normal reaction for one held against her will, but instead she thought of how he might be healed, end quote. As Freeman points out with such vivid prose, we don't know much about this girl. What we do know is that despite being carried off by the enemy, she hasn't lost her faith in the God of Israel. Not only this, but this girl, despite her circumstances, exhibits a remarkable ability to show empathy when violence has enveloped her life. She speaks of healing for another, even in her own brokenness. For those who have ears to hear it, I am convinced that there is a profound lesson in her outlook. 
In the midst of her hurting and longing to return home, she still looks at the world and the pain of others with compassion. To put it bluntly, she's probably better than us so much of the time. I say this because we probably all know how hard it can be to look out for others when we're wallowing in our own misfortune especially if our misfortune has been caused by those who are in need of a healing word that resides within us. In my mind, the girl is the quiet, unnamed hero of the story. She espouses faith when life has dealt her a wretched hand. More to the point, her faith shines in the passage in part because Naaman, upon hearing of the healer in Israel, sets out on a mission, a march toward the land of Israel yet again. This time, it, it isn't to take and to rob. Instead, he travels with a carnival of wealth. In search of the healing prophet of Israel, Naaman rides toward the Israelite king, loaded down with what one commentator has estimated to be 1,320 pounds of silver, 220 pounds of gold, and 10 changes of royal clothing. You almost feel the ground begin to quake under the feet of Israel's king as Naaman rides ferociously into town. Make way for Naaman, the imposing yet afflicted general. The enemy is within the gates, and he's demanding deliverance from the condition that degrades him from the outside in. Whereas the captured girl was able to see past circumstance to Naaman's suffering, the king can only see one thing. Naaman represents a political threat. Perhaps it's all a trap, a trick. The Israelite king tears his garments and, and mourns, believing that the whole shebang to be a provocation for war. You get the idea that the king thought nothing of Naaman's hurt, and only of the hurt Naaman could inflict on Israel yet again. And so... Naaman and his entourage are sent away without the king even uttering a word about Elisha, the prophet of God. But again, news of Naaman travels at light speed. And it isn't long before Elisha hears of the royal failure and also that Naaman is still in the area, having come to see if Israel's God really could heal him. And so Elisha ends up sending word to Naaman, come to me. Again, you can almost feel the weight of the gold and the silver shifting from side to side as the corners are taken all too fast in the mad dash toward the prophet's home. And with just as much pomp and circumstance as when Naaman appeared before the king, he now stands outside the prophet's door. Naaman has arrived He's announced as if anyone could miss his grand entrance. But Elisha, the one who sent for him, he stays inside. He's unmoved. It's a tension-rich moment. The powerful general with puffed-out chest has come for a hearing and ultimately for a healing. I picture Elisha sitting at the kitchen table sending the message 
through another messenger. The door slowly creaks open to reveal Naaman, his men, and the truckloads full of money. Uh, the prophet says you need to take a bath in the Jordan. Immerse yourself in the water seven times and you'll be healed. The messenger, who in my imagination is scared senseless, then slinks back into the side, leaving Naaman standing there all alone. The text then says that Naaman became angry. He's incensed, livid. How dare the prophet not even open the door and, and come to face me face to face? How dare he send for me and then stay inside, telling me that all I need to do is, is take a bath? Verse 11 reads, I thought that for me he would surely come out and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and would wave his hand over the spot and, and cure the leprosy. If we're honest, I think Naaman's longing for God to show up in a spectacular way is something a lot of people can probably relate to. Sometimes we want the emotional and the spiritual high. If you've ever prayed the same prayer over and over again, the idea of God answering your prayer obviously unquestionably, unmistakably, with, with fireworks even. This is the ultimate hope. To be clear, I'm not saying that God can't work in this way. But if I'm honest, I haven't had those moments of God shaking my world. And I don't think I've ever received a divine special word. I know others who claim to have had an experience like this, and I try not to doubt the testimonies of others. That's just not how it's ever been in my life. For me, I find the evidence of God's goodness in sacred and holy moments that feel simpler. It's in holding the hand of someone of faith on their deathbed, believing with all my being that we have a shared hope that is stronger than death. I saw something of the beauty of God a few weeks ago when I sat with a member of Peachtree who could no longer join us on Sunday mornings. We sat on her front porch and we watched the leaves falling and dancing and, and fluttering to the ground. It was simple, it was quiet, and it was astoundingly meaningful. But it wasn't flashy. So much of my faith is found and forged in the ordinary, and in the simple, but that's not what Naaman wants. He wants to feel the power of God coursing through his veins, destroying and, and vanquishing the disease. He wants the song and the dance. He wants the show. And even more, Naaman can buy the very best. Uh, clearly, money is no object. He can afford the most extravagant solution. If God or if the prophet of God can be paid off, then Naaman is prepared. Uh, name your price, prophet. But Elisha won't have any of it. He simply tells him via messenger to go and take a bath. It's the ancient equivalent of having a major medical problem, only to have your doctor reply, uh, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. It's insulting. It's ordinary. There's nothing special about it. 
It's an Israelite folk remedy at best. It's, it's humiliating for someone of the general's social standing. It's degrading through and through. Some commentators note that Elisha's staying inside is part of a long attempt to humble Naaman, to bring his inflated ego down to earth. Perhaps it's a way of saying that God's favor isn't dependent on your wealth, your status, or the number of stars stitched on your shoulders. Naaman even makes a point of saying that if it's a matter of a bath, there are better waters, there are cleaner waters than the Jordan. Of all the waters that he could go to, the Jordan seemed second rate at best. But in his anger, a voice in the background can be heard. Sir, he's not asking anything hard. We've come all this way and you said that you'd be willing to try anything. Why not give it a go? And so, with no other option, Naaman rides off for the Jordan River, where the story says that he immersed himself seven times. Upon coming up out of the water for the seventh time, his skin is transformed. In the Hebrew, it notes that his skin is like that of a baby's flesh. He's practically a Johnson and Johnson ad. The point is that God was at work in the ordinary stuff of life. Don't miss the irony here. Naaman becomes clean in the very waters that he had just deemed to be unclean. As an aside, the story of Naaman's immersion has received a lot of treatment in Christian reflection. In part, it's a story about the outsider, the foreigner, and the enemy receiving the grace and healing of God by being immersed in the very same waters where Jesus was later baptized. The theological point here relates to the fact that in the kingdom of God, baptismal water is thicker than blood. Put another way, even those outside the family and boundaries of Israel are invited to be joined in God's redemptive and life-transforming story. Notably, upon Naaman's exiting the waters, he gallops off to Elisha's house for a second time, and this time Elisha goes out to greet him. We seem to find that the pretense is now dropped. Naaman finally understands. Our story this morning ends with the words, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Truth be told, I've wondered about the sermonic point in all of this. I actually think there are a number of final conclusions that we can make. There are many morals to this story. And going back to the young girl, perhaps we would do well to remember to look for how we can speak words of hope even when we're hurting or in need of healing ourselves. Henry Nouwen writes of what it means to be a wounded healer. This story reminds that hurting people can still be helping people. This is the entire sermon for some of you. Or perhaps I should remind you once more of the king's folly. 
in the presence of someone else's pain, he could think only of himself and his world. In a way, the Israelite king is the foil to the girl's empathetic character. He gets so caught up in the political scrum of life that he fails to point Naaman to a place of health. The sage lesson we need to hear is to be careful of being so transfixed on your own fears that you fail to see the needs of others standing right in front of you. This, too, is a sermon. And then there is Elisha, the prophet. In this account, his character feels a bit enigmatic. It's obvious that he has compassion. He's the character that that calls and, and invites Naaman to come near. But it's odd how he keeps Naaman waiting. I keep coming back to that strange and tension-riddled moment. To the best that I can tell, this action wasn't because Elisha was afraid, but rather because Elisha believed deep down that faith wasn't a matter of prestige or pretense. Beyond this, Elisha's instructions reinforced the kind of faith that many of us share and cling to, a faith that doesn't always come with a parade, but rather a faith that takes heart and hope in the everyday waters of life. And even though it's a miracle story, I think Elisha somehow holds out an everyday faith for all of us. Elisha reminds that a simple faith and trust can be transforming. It can bring healing and peace. And last but not least, there's Naaman. I'm really not sure if he's still the villain at the end of it all. At least for a moment, he says the right thing. He acknowledges God, and as the text goes on to detail, he realizes that God's power isn't something to be bought or manipulated with gold or silver. Elisha will go on to tell him that God's favor was never for sale. God's action in the world was a result of God's boundary-crossing love. Naaman simply had to have the courage to accept God's healing that didn't comport to what he imagined. I've wondered this week what went through Naaman's head when he finally got back home. There's so much room to speculate. Does he send the unnamed girl home? What goes through his mind? Does he keep warring through the people of Israel? Perhaps the lesson I take in the end is the lesson that the unnamed girl already knew. It's simply this. Even our enemies know pain that is real. Naaman reminds us that everybody hurts at one time or another. The powerful reminder is that God sees the pain, be it skin deep or from the inside out. Just as God sees Naaman's pain, so God sees your pain and your neighbor's pain. God sees you this morning, in this very moment, and God knows you for all that you are and for all that you will ever be. Our story holds out hope, healing, and wholeness for a fragmented world. And this is medicine we all need.